I thought it would be good to take the opportunity to reflect on the Dhammapada verse that um, is on tomorrow's calendar page, uh, verse 160, which some of you may have already looked at, which says, if I remember correctly, that truly it is ourselves that we depend upon. How could we really depend upon another? When we reach the state of self-reliance, we find a rare refuge. So truly it is ourselves that we depend upon. How can we really depend upon another? When we reach the state of self-reliance, we find a rare refuge. And if you uh, see the, the calendar, you'll see there's a, uh, a picture of uh, Lumpur Anek on arms round, receiving arms food. And the reason I chose that picture for that verse was the juxtaposition of somebody obviously depending upon somebody else, uh, really wanting to highlight um, this question and, and, and bring it into our awareness so that we, we can consider what it, what, what the, what's this verse really pointing to in terms of self-reliance. Obviously, uh, it's not talking about growing your own vegetables and knitting your own jumpers. That's uh, one level of self-reliance that I, I believed in um, about uh, 40 years ago. Uh, I was pursuing self-reliance on amongst uh, some nice company and uh, we used to uh, get up to all sorts of interesting things together in those days aiming at self-reliance, but I hadn't really come across the Buddhist teachings at that point. And coming across the Buddhist teachings, and, and particularly verses like this, uh, realize, well, we need to think deeper. We need to look deeper. And uh, Self-reliance, if we're talking about relying on ourselves as a personality, or even relying on ourselves physically, the personality is a, a body-mind thing. Uh, this is me. This 60-year-old body and you know, 60 years of history. You've got these mental habits and physical habits, and speech habits. Yeah. And this is what I experience myself to be. And if we try and rely upon this, we try and make this something that you know, something like a rare refuge, something that's really secure. We're well. We all know we're bound to fail. Because you know, once you reach our stage of life, for most of us anyway, you know the end is, you know, almost on the horizon. You know, if we can, if it's not us that's fading out, we're, our, our friends and family are fading out. So we uh, we realise that this body is not a safe refuge. It's not. We're not going to feel secure by depending upon the body, depending upon the personality. Well, that likewise. I mean, when we uh, the ego when when we get it all well fed and, and puffed up and, and uh, full of all the things it likes like praise and affection and appreciation and compliments and perception of success and competence 
but speaking personally, I don't know what you get off on, but those are the things that I like. And if I get a lot of them, well, I can feel, yeah, I'm self-reliant. But, you know, if just somebody comes along and it pulls back their affection and their love and their appreciation and, and starts giving me the opposite, well, this thing becomes rather unsatisfactory and not something that I feel I can really depend upon. And so the Buddha's realization, and what this verse I think is pointing to, is that there is the possibility of real security, and the Buddha sometimes called unshakable security, an unshakable security that is found within, beyond the body-mind. He's sometimes referred to this, this realization he had as the beyond, realizing the beyond. So he didn't demonize the personality or the ego or say we should get rid of it. This is, a, I would suggest, a mistake that, that sometimes uh, Buddhists make. Uh, many of us, uh, to some degree, have made it, that we demonize the ego. We think this uh, personality has let us down. This me that I experience myself to be is not reliable, and so we judge it uh, as somehow wrong and um, and demonize it. And, and often I've heard this, the language of talking about the ego as if it's somehow some sort of a failure because we've got an ego. Well, I don't believe that's what the teachings are pointing to. I think the ego's got its place. But we need to realize the place of the ego. We need to realize what this perception of me is for. And from about the age of seven, we all have a, a differentiated sense of somebody separate from mummy and daddy and the environment we live in. And then as the years go by, and we, this perception of meanness gets more solid. And, and then we start believing it as something ultimate. And then we start polishing it and protecting it and promoting it. And, uh, you know, ten or so years down the line, we, get some, we have a rude awakening. And we realize what a mess we've got ourselves in. And we, we feel desperately lonely and we're looking for somebody to make us feel whole. We're not relying on ourselves, we're relying on external stimulus. But that doesn't mean to say that the perception of oneself is wrong. What it means is that we don't understand this perception of being a self. I often give the image of like a rainbow. Now, can you say a rainbow is real or is it not real? Is a rainbow real? Well, you can see it. It's perceivable. You know, it's a beautiful thing. But if you go and try and see what the rainbow really is, and you get closer, the closer you get to the rainbow, the more it disappears. And so this is a kind of inquiry that, uh, as followers of the Buddha, we're asked to make. That this assumption we have of being a solid, substantial somebody, you know, a personality, the one that wants to be praised, doesn't like to be blamed, wants to win, doesn't like losing, this feeling of meanness, the Buddha is asking us to examine it, to look at it, to get really, really close. And this is, so this is what, one of the things we're doing in meditation is quietening down the mind, steadying our attention so things are just a little bit more settled. And then in a moment, there's a perception of me arises, like, for instance, you remember 
something somebody did, they let you down, and then there's this feeling of, I feel disappointed. But if we're steady enough, clear enough, present enough in the moment, that there's, there's an ability to see that moment arising. This is what the Buddha was talking about as possible. To be able to see the moment of the arising of this experience of meanness and the feeling that comes with that. The perception, the mental perception, the movement of mind, the physicality of it, the me, I feel disappointed. However, the encouragement is to, rather than to buy into that, believe in that, and to grasp at that, we're able to fall back and watch it. Don't move. Don't move. Don't move on it. Be still. Stay still. Watch. And that's where we get our meditation object, which is helping us be still. And you watch it. And the next thing you know, that perception of meanness is gone. So who was that? Who was that? Was that really me? Was that really me? That kind of a doubt that comes in, was that really me that was disappointed? It felt like me to some degree, but wasn't there also the watchfulness? Wasn't there also an awareness in which this meanness was arising and ceasing? I think this gives us a sort of a hint at what this verse is pointing towards. To become self-reliant is not to be reliant on the conditioned personality, outer self, but and not to make some sort of an ultimate self about awareness either. There have been people who've tried to put words in the Buddha's mouth and, 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 and have him come out with as an ultimate self, that's, but that's not the case. Uh, that's not what the Buddha's encouraging. But rather to let go of, through understanding this perception of this is me and this is mine. And so if we have some confidence that this is possible, that the agony, the pain of limited being, always wanting more, always wanting to be made secure, always wanting to be made safe, how painful that is. If we get a feeling for, the com- if we have confidence in the possibility to go beyond that, that's the goal, that's our goal. We're not demonizing the fact that we feel lonely. We're not demonizing the fact that we want to be loved. We want to be proved of. We want to win. We don't want to lose. We're not demonizing that. We're not even saying that's wrong. We're just saying that that's a limited perception. That's a limited way of feeling who and what we are. And so we take on the training. So we have the goal now. We have this confidence that it's possible to see more. To see beyond what we're used to seeing. And if we have this confidence, well, actually it gives us a lot more space to live in. We can, we can feel all sorts of things about our so-called self, but we can feel them with awareness. You, know, you, want, you, know, you want all sorts of things. You know, I want to get rid of such and such a person. And you can watch that. You can see that, that I want to get rid of such and such a person. I want them to go away. I don't want to have to talk to such and such a person or so I don't want this, or I don't like that. With awareness, with an interest in awareness, with a confidence and power of awareness, we can allow these things to pass through the mind. Now, of course, we have to be careful because it can be a subtle thing when you think you're just allowing some feeling of dislike for somebody to pass through the mind, but there can also be a subtle clinging to that dislike of that person. And at that point, we're still making karma, we're still doing something that is very unwholesome, clinging to any dislike, clinging to anything is unskillful. Certainly clinging 
to hate it and dislike is, is very unskillful, very unhelpful. So if we have confidence in the goal of this possibility of a state of self-reliance which is beyond the ego self, then we can be feel really committed in training. And we can give ourselves to the exercises that, that the, the, the Buddha gave us and the teachers have given us. And we experiment, we need to experiment, we're encouraged to experiment, to find out what works. And there's so many teachings, uh, and sometimes it's colloquially referred to the 84,000 dhammas, which just means a lot. And there's a lot of teachings, because people are different. Why are there a lot of teachings? Why are there a lot of skillful means, what the Buddha called upaya, or skillful means? Because there's a lot of people who have lots of complicated ways of making lots of problems. And so for as many people as there are and as many problems as we create, there need to be skillful means to help us let go. And so we need to find for ourselves, with interest, with enthusiasm, and with faith in the goal, to find what works. I personally don't believe that you have to study the 84,000 dhammas and learn what works for everybody. You just need to find a few that work for you. And in my own practice over the years, there's a few things that I've discovered that I keep coming back to, and probably some of you have heard me talk about them ad nauseum, but, well, maybe it's not ad nauseum, maybe you find it actually inspiring. I find it inspiring. The, the three hooks that I like to remind myself and remind other people about, the three, the three focuses of attention, when, when we can't see what it is we're supposed to be doing in practice, and moving towards the goal, stop, and I reckon you can contemplate these three things. Bringing awareness to here and now, whole body mind, judgment free. Those three things. Now, if you try to remember the 84,000 dhammas, it's, you know, I think it's probably too much. Certainly too much for me. But these three, I can remember. I think these three are really worth remembering. Here and now, because we really believe in stories. We really, really believe in stories. We are, most of us, are just compulsive story makers. But don't feel bad about that. You know, the Buddha himself, you know, when, when his enlightenment, at the point of his enlightenment, you know, he turned around and said, I've seen you. Well, he called him house builder. He didn't say story maker, but uh, my dear friend, the late Venerable Miyokioni used to refer to this point, that, that how the house builder is that that which builds the houses that we occupy in, always building up a sense of identity so as to make ourselves secure. Now I'm okay. I'm in my safe space. But is any space that we've created really secure? It's temporarily okay, but is it really secure? That's not what the Buddha was referring to. When the Buddha realized liberation, he realized that unsakeable state of security and he said, house builder, I have seen you. No more houses will you build. Your ridgepole is broken. Well, likewise with the stories that our mind tells us. We can, we need to, not we can, we need to actually recognize where we tell ourselves all these stories about the past and about the future. So if we make a determination, we highlight this <clears throat> here and now aspect of awareness. And when we're telling ourselves stories about the past, all the things that happened to me in the past, you know, we're feeling upset about something and, and then just to see how much we go into the past and, and we really believe in it. 
because that happened at that stage in my life, now I'm like this. What happens if we stop making the stories? What happens if we come back to the body, take a deep breath, feel that body posture sitting up, right? And just say here and now. The stories. We're not going, the past is not real. In any sense other than it's a memory. And our memory is certainly unreliable. You know, we embellish it, we twist it, we distort it. And likewise with the future, the stories we tell ourselves about the future. Mm-hmm. A little thought pops up in the mind and and you say, Oh, I've got a I've got a new brown spot on my on my neck. I looked in the mirror and there's this new brown spot on my neck. And the mind starts coming up and saying, It's bound to be cancer. I know it's cancer. I've spent far too much time in the sun. It's got to be cancer. My uncle had cancer and I've committed all this wicked come where I'm bound to get cancer and, and we what we, is we're creating a story. That's a story. That's a story. But if we don't really identify this, if we don't really see this, if we don't really see that we are believing in the stories we tell ourselves, then we take ourselves out of the possibility of this here and now aspect of awareness. When our attention is established in here and now, we still have the memories of the past. We still have the potential to think about the future. We can speculate, extrapolate, imagine about the future. But if we're really established here and now, then there's less chance we're going to get lost. Really the problem is when we get lost. There's not a problem with memories of the past until we get lost in them, which means we attach them. There's not a problem about the future. In fact, the capacity we have for imagining about the future is really very important. We can extrapolate from the past, I did this, this and this and that happened, it got me into a lot of trouble and so if in the future I'm more restrained at that point and I cultivate this quality, then there's things to be different. And so to be able to extrapolate, to be able to project, to be able to fantasize has its place. Getting lost in the past and lost in the future is the problem. So reminding ourselves, here and now, whole body mind, why is whole body mind so important? Well, because we very easily split off. Now, some people, um, some people don't really know how to occupy their mind. Now, most of us, I imagine, it's the other way around. We don't know how to occupy our bodies. And most of us, we're so busy, or well, certainly men, we're so so split off from about the neck down. We're just up in our heads, just fantasizing and imagining and you know even for even meditating on breathing for a lot of people I've heard this said many times people can't really feel the body breathing they're only thinking the body breathing and and even normal feelings like sadness or gladness or gratitude for a lot of people um, to really allow the feeling to be felt in the body to receive it and to let it be what it is is, is uh, quite challenging, quite difficult because the kind of education we had, the kind of uh, training, conditioning we grew up with made us feel that it's what we think that's important. It's our views and opinions that really matter. And so little by little we 
we left the body and went up into the the mind space and and it's again there's nothing wrong with that it's just uncomfortable unbalanced and unnatural but it's not wrong so when we see it we don't have to make it wrong we just um, we say well is that all there is to life and so uh, very much in our meditation practice the encouragement to occupy the body to be in the body to be aware of body posture we don't have to become all like Zen monks and sitting upright impeccable balanced posture and sit meditation for hours that's not the point but to learn how to feel the body to feel what it feels like to be in the body so when for instance there's irritation we don't immediately go up into our head and then start spinning a story about how much we hate this person and and, and they did that to me and I'm going to do that to them and and my problem with anger is because this happened to me in my life. Actually, you can do that, but is that going to really resolve anything? Very unlikely. What's really called for is to include an awareness of that dimension, but also of the body. And sometimes to catch it in the body can be a more direct message. You know, we don't even have to go up into the mind and start analyzing why we feel angry or why we feel greedy. That's sometimes secondary or tertiary already once it goes up there. The fire is in the belly. The fire is in the body. The impulse is usually felt first in the body. And if we can catch it there and nip it in the bud before it starts going up into our hearts then into our heads, then we don't have to create all this karma. We don't have to create all the, the stories and all the pain, all the suffering and all the consequences of being lost. So... Our training and awareness is very much a whole body-mind awareness. We can get a lot of data, a lot of information from being in this body to breathe into the body. And we also lock a lot of old, unlived life in the body. Again, for many people, when they start meditating and a little bit of energy starts circulating through the body and they start getting pains and all sorts of obstructions in the body and can't breathe properly, can't feel properly, uh, and then body twitching, and, and a lot of that can be put down to old pain, old unlived life that we have pushed down. We didn't have the resources at the time to live through it, so we've locked it into the body, into the muscles, into the nervous system, into the bones. And so very much a part of our spiritual life is to let that be cleared out, to feel what we need to feel, and then to let go. So letting go is not going to happen only if we think about it up in our heads. Many people think that Buddhism is a wonderful religion because it's all about understanding. Yes, it's true. It is about understanding, but it's a whole body-mind, it's a whole being understanding. It's not just a split-off abstract understanding. So here and now, whole body-mind, judgment-free awareness. This is the third point that I, I personally find particularly important in, in training ourselves or training myself and progressing towards the goal. And this judgment-free awareness, identifying this because, again, we have such a compulsive tendencies towards taking sides within ourselves and outwardly also. Again, we don't have to make it wrong. We don't have to say we shouldn't be judging because that, of course, is a judgment. Often that's happened when I... You know, people will talk to me about their spiritual practice, about their meditation or their relationship or their life or whatever. And it's so loaded with judgment like I shouldn't be this way. I really shouldn't be this way. Life shouldn't be this way. 
And uh, after I listened to it for a while, and I, I uh, and especially people who meditate a lot, they um, they have a very strong. Often they have a very strong view about how they should be, and it's not like this. And if I just try to kind of give them a little reflection, I'll hold up a mirror and just say, you know, is it ever, you know, can you listen to the tone of your voice, the way that you're talking right now, and and do you think you could hear a little bit of judging going on there and how does that feel? Is that you know? Is that really make you feel good? And often people will get it straight away and say, "Oh, no, I'm so judgmental. I've just got to stop being so judgmental." And of course, that's not subtle enough, is it? You know, judging the judging mind is not what we're talking about. But rather, we need to go through that point of recognizing the tendency of judging the judging mind, but to see that that's not all there is. Judging the judging mind is just so. Yes, we have this compulsive tendency to judge. Again, this is, we were wired this way, we were trained this way, we were conditioned this way. And our schooling, our education, it's discriminative intelligence that we were educated in, not unitive intelligence, not love, not poetry, not awe. Maybe some people were taught poetry, but yeah. most of it was scientific, analytical, discriminative intelligence. That was what was praised. And the more often you can put your hand up and say, I know, and you've got a view and opinion, we weren't usually, most of us weren't taught to listen to what it, and feel what it feels like to not know, to abide in a state of awe or humility or trusting or waiting. And so, you know, we didn't have that. And so what we've got is this. We've got this compulsive tendency to always discriminate, to want to know, to want to be sure. And not knowing, not being sure is wrong. I really want to get rid of it. I can't stand it. It is wrong. Well... That conditioning obviously makes us very productive and sharp-minded up to a certain point, but probably most of us have, have some feeling for how painful that compulsive tendency of mind is when it just won't shut up. To just you know, sometimes you think, "Oh, I've had enough. I'll just be still." You can't do it. Why not? Because we're caught up in this wheel, this momentum. Of always becoming, always trying to get away from what we don't like, trying to get what we like, trying to get away from that which is wrong and become that which is right. Well, the encouragement is to cultivate the quality of awareness, which means we're able to expand our attention and to feel, to observe, to sense this whole drama going on. This picking and choosing, right, wrong, should, should, good, bad. This compulsive judging mind, and to name it. That's what I encourage, to name it, to identify, to label it. Judging mind, judging mind. And sometimes when people really get themselves entangled with meditation and, and, and we're talking about practice, and I, you know, I, 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 I dare to suggest, look, I think you should stop meditating for a while. And some people are so addictive to using their meditation as a, as a way of controlling, they're so compulsively, such compulsive control freaks that they can't dare to stop meditating. And so if I tell them to stop meditating, they really don't like that. But on the other hand, some people do get the message and, and, and what I suggest to them is that instead of meditating in a controlling way, why don't you just be aware? Sit in your chair, if, you know, or sit on the floor if you really have to, but be comfortable. And just do nothing for, for 10 or 15 minutes. The only thing you want to be particularly interested in is the tendency 
to take a position for or against anything. Just this discriminating, judging mind. That's, you know, just get interested in that because this seems to be tripping you up. So, you know, maybe later on you can meditate again, but for now, it looks like you're taking into your meditation a, a, a divided position, like you're divided against yourself, how you should be and how you shouldn't be, and this is, this is not producing the peace that you're looking for. So just pull back from that kind of controlling effort for a while and just be aware and particularly interested in the tendency to take a position for or against anything, judging mind. And when you see this, be ready to recognize it. So you sit there, do nothing, you know, just quietly looking at the floor, 10, 15 minutes. And sure enough, before very long, something will come up into awareness and the mind will kick in and just say, it shouldn't be this way. Like, I'm wasting my time. I shouldn't be doing this. Oh, very interesting. Got it. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. That's exactly what I'm looking for. The judging mind. There's nothing wrong with the judging mind. Or maybe you come and say, oh, yes, I shouldn't be judging. You say, no, that's not subtle enough. Judging and judging mind, that's not it either. Just All we want to do is have a simple relationship with it, a simple, straightforward recognition that this tendency of judging feels like this. And if there's any compulsion to it, can we just let it go? Can we just say, oh, judging mind, okay, hi, how are you doing? See you later. Or is it, got to know, got to be sure. So I would expect that for most people, they will discover that they have a compulsive judging mind and then they start judging the compulsive judging mind. But the good news is that when you get behind that, when you, when you simply be aware of the judging mind, then it's like awareness opens right up. You don't have to be judging yourself. You can even make mistakes. Like we do make mistakes, but instead of covering up our mistakes and pretending we don't make mistakes and criticizing and judging ourselves for making mistakes, we can say, well, that was a mistake. All right, no judgment. Of course, you didn't set out to make a mistake, hopefully. You just say, oh, right, there's a mistake. And then, we can, then we've got a much better chance of learning from it. And also, the extra bonus is that when we stop judging ourselves, we can also stop judging others. Yeah, because that's not very nice to live with people who are always judging you all the time. And so... So, in terms of uh, walking the path towards true self-reliance, the rare refuge that the Buddha pointed out, uh, these are some hints, these are things that I find helpful. As I said, we are encouraged to listen to all sorts of teachings until we find the things that work for ourselves and then experiment with them to see what helps us. Take us, take us out of that addiction we have to feeding on the false self. You know, whether it's Emotional addiction like feeding on praise, feeding on compliments, feeding on affection, feeding on success, and then at the same time being afraid of all the opposite. Or physical addictions like the false hits that we get from eating too much. Too much sugar, too much caffeine, whatever other drugs we might turn to. To quietly observe them, to quietly see them, not to judge them, not to make up stories about them, not to deny them, but to sus- be suspicious of them. Yeah. There can be healthy doubt in practice. You know, faith, obviously all religions talk about faith and Buddhism talks about faith. But Buddhist faith is not, Buddhist faith is not threatened by doubt 
by healthy skepticism. I don't mean compulsive neurotic doubt, but I mean that doubt that says, maybe my always trying to win, trying to succeed, trying to be best, is not a safe, secure refuge. Maybe there's something more to it than that. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.